This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. I was possessed this afternoon with the wish to tell you everything I know about <laughs> I think it's because somebody um, somebody in our meeting who was obviously a little deluded said they thought I was wise and it just triggered something. <laughs> I'm going to share every shred of wisdom I've ever had with you. And of course my colleagues are pleading with me, no, no. <laughs> Please don't. I said, look, it's going to be like in the monastery where the teacher just goes on and on and on. Your legs are killing you. You're dying to go to bed. And just the Dharma keeps rolling on. Um, So maybe that will happen for us tonight. Anyway, you can see we've got plenty of material, not to mention everything in there. So... So I really wanted to share with you some some stories of awakening and some uh, stories of great teachers, and uh, <clears throat> and then I want to start by just asking you to uh, make a fist and make it as tight as you can, really tight, and then hold it really tight, pressing until it starts to get uncomfortable. Your knuckles might um, start to ache a little bit, but don't let go. Just stay with that discomfort. You know how to be mindful, aching, aching. Then um, the fingernails start to dig into the palms a little bit. And for the new people, we're not teaching self-mutilation techniques to stay awake or anything. It's just um, keep... Have you still got it tight? (laughs) Okay, and then now just let it let it just relax and see how it feels. Oh my gosh, the fingers are really cramped, aren't they? Um, but you can feel the blood start to flow back into the hand. 
And, you know, it won't stay like this forever because we have been studying about impermanence. And then it starts to feel kind of better, doesn't it? I hope it feels better. (laughs) So this is actually the process um, of retreat. It's the power of mindfulness that we, um, we move from a pretty tight, constricted place in ourselves. Uh, it could be a place where we feel imprisoned or we're not even aware of it. But there's a movement toward, toward opening, opening this hand of thought, this tight fist of thought, toward opening and, um, and toward a feeling of more freedom. And... Um, you know, we have these moments of more freedom and then something happens, you know, like maybe we're hungry or maybe we're angry about something. Maybe we're lonely in our encapsulated in our thought world. It's very lonely to be just thinking, thinking, thinking all the time. It's, it's lonesome. Maybe we're just tired. Uh, this comes from... 12-step program where they say halt, like recognize these symptoms of um, times when we just are feeling very unfree, unfree. And, And so when we're in that state, a kind of narrow, constricted place. We're, we're kind of deadened to the good things that are happening all around us, inside us, outside us, the harmonious functioning of our liver, for example, or um, the fact that, right, it's nighttime and the crickets, maybe it will still sing. It's a little chilly tonight. We'll see. But we can, over and over again, it's this process of emerging from that contracted, compressed, suffering being um, into, and I'm just talking, you know, there can be very mild forms of suffering or just agony that we go through, mental and physical. And still, we are here to free our hearts and we trust that as we open that hand of thought and learn to be present more and more with our suffering, and our good moments, uh, to open out into more and more loving awareness, um, we start to feel a little bit more ease. And everybody here has had at least some moments of that um, by now. And it's really important because, well, here's a piece of wisdom. This is a poem from Mary Howe called The Last Time. And she, her brother died of AIDS, and she wrote a bunch of poems about it. The last time we had dinner together in a restaurant with white tablecloths, he leaned forward and took my two hands in his hands and said, I'm going to die soon. I want you to know that. And I said, I think I do know. And he said, What surprises me is that you don't. And I said, I do. And he said, what? I said, know that you're going to die. 
And he said, no. I mean, know that you are. What surprises me is that you don't know that you are. So wisdom is very wise. It sees this very clearly. It has equanimity, which is not easy to have about our own lives ending or the life of somebody we love very much. It can see the impermanence and the fleeting nature of our life. And the Buddha was very clear about this. He said, this is the way you should look at life. This is how you should look at it. He called it this fleeting world. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Very, very clear. Very clear. And I think by now, clear, clear to all of us, too, that, yeah, this is, this is how it is. And we can see it with our thoughts. He doesn't say a thought. He says, you know, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. But by now, I think we've also realized the mortality of our thoughts, that they don't last forever. It's a kind of, um, it's a good news when we're sitting and meditating. It's not exactly as good news when you're giving a talk, perhaps. (laughs) That they just kind of slip away sometime (laughs) in the middle of your speaking. Um, So a few things that I really wanted to encourage you to do tonight. Um, And the first one is really to make the practice your own. To... Listen to all, you know, by now you've had so many different instructions from all of us. And the beauty of having a team where we're all quite different from one another, we all have our different take on the teachings and our expression of our experiences with awakening. And the good news is it gives you permission to be exactly who you are, just seeing the Dharma and all of these different forms of each one of us. And at the same time, it can be confusing. Like, actually, you know, Matthew said these words, but Beth said these words, but... And my first teacher, he used to say, don't attach to my words, because of course we did. He was our teacher, and we would cling to his words, especially in retreat when you're just trying to get sane. And uh, so we would really attach to his words, and he would say, um, when we go for a meeting, if he felt we were getting really attached to his instructions, he'd say, it's just like a dog running after a bone. It was not a complimentary image. (laughs) Um, It's not what you want your teacher to think of you as. Um, But to make the practice your own, certainly by now, I think you're all beginning to get a sense of how to do that. We're so, we're all wired so differently from each other. And we sit here and give instructions to almost a hundred people. 
as if it's the same and one size fits all, and it isn't. We are neurologically more diverse, more different from one another than through any differences of gender or skin color or sexual orientation. Um, we're actually wired differently. And that means that we have different kinds of brains and that we need to respect ourselves and our own nature and how we are and how we learn best and not throw everything that you already know about yourself in this way, throw it out because now you're in a retreat. Um, but to respect these differences of temperament and babies are born with different temperaments. Once um, I went to this uh, a seminar on, it was about actually doing psycho, psycho, psychoanalytic psychotherapy with infants. It was very interesting. I know, you think, how can you do that? But, you know, just like Brandt watches these little movements of the body, and you, you can at least speculate and... Um, project onto the infant a lot of <laughs> a lot of theoretical possibilities but one thing that was not theoretical was seeing um pictures of the babies i i don't want to think about how they were taken maybe they were just they they maybe they were just ultrasounds i don't know but you could see the baby in the womb and it was fascinating some babies were literally lolling around, you know, just like floating and just their palms up, completely blissed out, seeming very relaxed anyway. Um, some babies had already found their thumb or a finger and were sucking on them already. I mean, these were babies who were pretty much ready to come out. And some babies were actually like practically cringing way back away from the cervix. <laughs> they were not, you know, not eager beavers, not the aversive types. They were already there, you know. And so we come in with different temperaments. We have obviously different cultures, different growing up experiences, um, all of this and different lives. So just to to trust yourself, to adapt the practices um, to who you are and to what works for you. And the definition of what works for you is what helps you stay present with experience. It's, it's really pretty simple. And then, you know, respecting yourself, but also being willing to challenge yourself too, which of course you've all done. You've worked so hard. All of you have worked so hard in your own ways. Um, for some people, working really hard has actually looked like maybe not working quite so hard because they're always working hard. For some people, you know, it's really different for each one of us. Um, so I just want to encourage you to remember that and to take that into account as you practice. So a couple of awakening stories. Um, I, I won't just, I'll tell stories about great other teachers and some about myself. And I really, when I talk about myself and my own experience, it's in the spirit of Thoreau. He says at the beginning of Walden, he says, 
the reason that I'm writing about myself, I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I'm sure more elegantly. But he said the reason that I'm writing about myself is not because, you know, it, it wasn't for reasons of, um, he didn't use this word, of being, you know, preoccupied with himself or narcissistic. He said it's just that I, this self, I'm the one that I know most intimately. Just as you are the one that you know most intimately. So that's what he could talk about. So this is a story about my Soto Zen teacher, Koben, Koben Chino Otogawa, Koben Chino Roshi. And it's a story about how teachers kind of point to the reality that we wake up to and in how it's done in Zen is um, very inconspicuously, like you could really miss it. And how it's done in the Tibetan tradition is very, what's the opposite of inconspicuously. Inconspic- the teacher says, I'm going to give you pointed at, pointing out instructions, and then does so. So one day I had gone to, uh, my friend Jonelle lived in Humboldt County in Northern California. She had three children, the oldest of whom was five. So she couldn't sit a retreat. And she hadn't been able to for, I don't know, six years anyway. So I went to visit her. This is actually when I lived where I spent most of my adult life in Massachusetts. I traveled to visit her. And my gift was, I will take care of the children while you sit the sashim. And it was actually really fun. We just played on the swings and read stories and their knees were killing them up in the sashin, and I was just playing with the kids. So it was wonderful for her and wonderful for me. But as a kind of thank you, the teacher um, gave me the opportunity of having a meeting with him as well. So we met. It, it's very, very rustic where they live. We met by a creek, and we were sitting at this. It was a dry stream bed and sitting, and he was asking me about my daughter, and we were just talking and sharing about my practice and my life. And then, um, and you know how when something important is said to you, you actually remember what you were looking at in that moment? You can see it. And then the meeting was clearly over. He stood up because he stood up. That was the cue that the meeting was over. <laughs> he stood up and he he brushed off his robes, you know, from we were sitting um kind of in the sandy, rocky place, and he brushed off his robes and said, this is it. And then, you know, turned to walk back up to the retreat. And it was one of those moments when I thought, well, this is it, right? The meeting's over. But it wasn't just that. It was, this is it. This is it. This moment brushing off, standing up, brushing off the robes, and turning and walking up the hill. This is it. And to trust that this is it. It's, uh, this is the work of our practice. It's not so easy to do. 
I'll tell you now, this is a Tibetan pointing out story. Um, the great teacher, Pato Rinpoche, he was known as uh, the enlightened vagabond, and he lived in the 19th century. And he was approached by a man who wanted to be his disciple, um, Nyosho Lungtuk. And Nyosho Ken tells this story, who is one of Lama Suridas's teachers. So Nyosho uh, Lungtuk wanted, he said to Paturimsha, I want to be your student, and I'd like to understand the nature of mind. And, and Paturimsha said, well, just stay around me for a while. And um, Nyosho Lungtuk wound up staying for 28 years around Paturimsha. And one time they were traveling, and Pato Rinpoche had made a vow never to sleep indoors, which in Tibet is a different vow than it would be in California, right? Um, so one night uh, they were traveling, and he and Nyosho uh, Longtuk went outside, and they laid down on a hilltop. And they were just lying there, stargazing and probably, you know, looking for shooting stars and very relaxed and at ease. And and suddenly the dogs started barking way down the hill at the Dzogchen Monastery. And you could just hear them barking in the distance. And so Pato Rinpoche said to his disciple, do you hear the dogs barking? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, and do you see the stars? And he said, yes, I do. I see the stars. And then Rinpoche just suddenly said, this is it. <laughs> he probably shouted louder, this is it. And of course, Nyosho Luntov, you know, completely woke up. He just had an experience of this, this, this. All of us here, you listening, me talking, the candle flickering back there on the altar. This is it. And that was his introduction to the nature of mind. This is it. This is, um, they call it non-dual wisdom. It's a fancy name for this is it. And this is our life. It's a stream of momentary experiences. And if we really, when, not if, when we really see this, we just, we just feel released and happy. You know, we worry about the self-dissolving and it, it's a happy feeling. And if we really saw this all the time, we would all be just like hugging each other and dancing around together. I, we'd just be in love all the time because this would be it, and this, and this, and this. We're living in this stream of truth and released from everything else that isn't it, um, that goes on in our minds, right? Oh, one more story about Patro Rimshe. This is a favorite one. Um, so when he was practicing, he was doing his intensive practice, just like you've been doing here, but he was alone, probably in a cave or something, and and so he had, he had a vision. It was during the night and he was sitting and it was just this 
terrifying vision. He saw the whole valley just engulfed in this huge rainstorm, thunder, lightning, and and it seemed like the whole valley was just going to fill with water and be flooded. And he he really felt like the world was coming to an end. It was that kind of terror. But even though, oh, he saw a dragon. I mean, it was completely just a lot of um, terrifying, very demonic visions. But he sat still. He sat through it all. He didn't go screaming into the night. He stayed with his practice. He stayed with it, stayed with it. And in the morning, the vision had dissipated, and everything was clear. And then suddenly, a person showed up. I don't know if they trudged all the way up the mountain to his cave. A person showed up with this fresh, this bucket of fresh yogurt. And he just, he knew it was a Dakini coming to reward him for having been so... um just strong and unmoving in his practice. And so he went to his teacher for his meeting during his retreat, and he told the teacher about these two experiences. And the teacher said, well, you passed the first challenge, and you completely flunked the second one. Do you know why? Do you know why? It was just a pleasant vision, you see? It's like our mindfulness goes so far when we're really suffering. Okay, pain, pain, we can, no, it's not pain, I'm sorry. Stabbing, stabbing, throbbing, you know, we deconstruct, we use our, sometimes frantically, but we use all the tools that we're taught because it's painful and it's terrifying, whatever it is in that moment. But then often um, the other the thoughts, the pleasant ones, the rewarding ones. Um, I guess it, I wish in a way that we would all have that predicament, that we would believe and get caught in the pleasant ones <clears throat> and see the unpleasant ones for what they are. Um, I meant to say that the other way around. I almost wish that... Um, no, I do wish that. I wish that we actually had the problem more often of, um, you know, that we could mistrust our difficult experiences and trust the pleasant ones. I think for people, for us in our culture, that is something harder to do. So back to uh, something from my own experience. I want to share a story with you about something that my mom said um, toward the end of her life. And it was a couple weeks before she actually died. And um, she lived a long time. My mom lived until she was 88, but she actually wanted to live till she was 90 so that her great-grandson would be six years old because she felt he wouldn't understand about her death if she died when he was four. And she was right. He didn't. He thought that higgledy-piggledy, a witch had come to the door and she had let her in instead of realizing it was a witch. And that's how she died. But she didn't get to live till 90 and Owen was confused about her dying. And and that's the nature of our life sometimes. But I didn't know it was two weeks before she died. And I was talking to her on the phone and it was the end of a long week and I was tired. And um, 
I had just finished a lot of teaching and I was probably complaining a little bit about being tired. And, but in my family, uh, complaining was kind of one of the currencies of intimacy. We just <laughs> complained. And because we were Jewish, nobody called it whining. That was what wasp families called it, whining. Um, we just complained to each other. And it was just part of what we did with each other. So I don't make unsavory generalizations, but um, I was complaining to my mom about being tired, and I was sort of yawning. And, and she would say, when um, I would yawn on the phone, she'd say, tired for a change. And she, <laughs> she actually, um, she didn't take it personally. She didn't, she knew it wasn't because I was bored with her. Um, but this time I was telling her all the things I was doing. She was listening, but then she did something really unusual. She interrupted me and she said, whatever you're doing, honey, do it with joy. That was not the kind of thing my mom ever said to me. And I mean, usually she would listen and be sympathetic. She's a nice mom. Um, and who else would you complain to that way? Um, such a loss when we lose the person we can do that with. Who else would listen to you? Um, at least happily. Um, but the parent, you know, they're so glad to get our phone call. Just <laughs> glad to get a phone call from us. <laughs> Almost doesn't matter what we say. Um, so she said, just whatever you're doing, do it with joy. And it, it, it really struck me. I, I wondered, is she consciously imparting her wisdom to me at the end of her life because she knows she's going to die soon? Well, she did know that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know because I didn't ask her. And of course, now there's so many mysterious things. Uh, we can't find out about the people that have passed away. But it was an important thing that she said. And it reminded me of something that uh, my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, with whom I practiced from the time I met her in 1979 until she died in 1990. Um, and it was something that she had said at the end of her life, um, I was, my husband and I were at her apartment and just, I was sort of cleaning up the kitchen. I think he was giving her a massage and um, she was lying down in her living room afterwards and she had those purple, you know, those curtains, they, they have them in our teacher village. They're like plastic strips that hang down and you can turn them and they, you know, they make a they're either like this. It's like vertical blinds. That's what they are. So she had these purple vertical blinds in her living room. And I, she had a lot of purple in her living room. And I really wanted um, to ask her something about her enlightenment before she passed away. She actually passed away about five days later. And she went, she was in the hospital only for three days. And I mean, it didn't really dawn on me that it could be scary to ask your teacher a question about their enlightenment. Um, but we had a pretty close and friendly relationship. Obviously, I was 
at her house, cleaning up her kitchen. And so again, you remember what you were looking at at the moment somebody, so I was straightening up the magazines on her coffee table. She loved to cook. So she had gourmet magazines. She had all these fancy cooking magazines that she liked and would make recipes from. And so I just said to her, at this, at this time in your life, the end of your life, I just really want to know after a whole life of Buddhist practice and awakening, um, how do you see your life from the place that you're in now? And, and knowing that this is your time, it's really close. Like, what would you, what would you say to me now? You're a student asking you. I just really, I really want to know. She did not miss a beat. She did not hesitate. And she, but what she said was not at all what I expected to hear, like not even in the realm. She said, live it up. (laughs) Now, like you, we've spent, you know, countless hours in sitting with hair raising pain in the Zendo, right? And, um, really practicing. I mean, you know, the pain of our life, the losses we've had, the betrayals, the, Things that happened to us, uh, uh, we'd sit with this body, the first foundation of mindfulness, and um, we'd understand it was a laboratory for working with other kinds of pain. And, and it, Now, she was very, very strong during her illness. Um, I only saw her cry once, and it was right after she'd had the surgery that revealed all cancer was all over and there was nothing to do. Um, I wasn't expecting to hear her say, live it up. And she spoke with her usual power and authority. And it's been kind of a koan for me, a puzzle, something to reflect on over the years. And I thought of it, you know, when my mom said, whatever you do, honey, do it with joy. It, It felt like the same, the same message, like the wisdom of my Zen teacher, the heart, um, advice of my mom. And women who were so close to their dying at that time that what they said had great import. It felt like, you know, this is a wise time of life. It was their time of wisdom, and what they saw was something similar. It certainly wasn't what my mom had taught me all my life, um, and it wasn't what Maureen was saying in the Zendo all that time. Um, <laughs> at least not on the surface of it. And maybe it's not even, um, and maybe it's not even what they themselves were able to live during their whole lives, but it's what they knew and felt at the end. It's the truth that they saw then. And, you know, I think for my mom, she didn't wait until she died. I think my mom really enjoyed her life and tried to live and enjoy her life all the time the best she could. And she would make fun even of her terminal diagnosis and say, well, I can have ice cream for dinner now and it doesn't matter. And it was a genuine freedom for her. And she did have ice cream for dinner. <laughs> and she'd um, you know, go to the doctor and there would be some new Thing and she, doctor was really chilled. He'd say, "Oh, he said that's okay. That's just the cancer." And then we'd go out to lunch and laugh hysterically. Oh, 
that's just the cancer. <laughs> so she really did. Um, she even did that with a fair amount of joy. But I think that for us, I think what the us, for us, the message is clear that to incline the mind, to incline the heart toward that which is uplifting for us, that which is of joy. This is a form of metta practice, really. Um, and Nyaponika Tara, in the classic book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, he said, to that, to that which we bring attention, to that does the mind incline. To that which we bring attention, to that does the heart incline. We develop a habit, right? Of what we bring attention to over and over, that becomes, right? What we incline to. And I think that, um, I think for Maureen, what she really was saying was when she said, live it up, I think what she was really pointing to in that was um, the living each moment fully, to just embracing our life and living, living each moment fully. And I know that, um, I noticed that toward the end of her life, she, she always had this certain incense that she loved called kinkaku, this um, certain kind of Japanese incense. And toward the end of her life, she, she, took, she brought the incense down from the altar and she would put it right here, right next to her cushion. It was as though she just didn't even want to miss a whiff of that fragrance. You know, just breathing it in, just breathing it in. And uh, I loved that she did that and watching her do that. When um, Dogen Zenji, the 13th century Zen master that I told you about that teaching of just stepping back, uh, Jack talked about it in a different way when he talked about stepping back to the one who knows to awareness. Um, and Dogen called it the backward step. His One of his parents, I can't remember, I think it was his dad, died when he was three. And then his mother died when he was seven or eight. And he sat by her cold body and he watched uh, the incense smoke curl and rise and twist and vanish. And he had an experience of awakening as a little boy, just watching the incense smoke disappear and watching the stick of incense burn down and seeing his mom having passed away. Um, and he said later, I can walk on the edge of a white blade. You know, his practice was that accurate and precise. He just could walk on that razor's edge without slipping off. He said, I can, and, and Dogen too, he was somebody who for years had a vow of not lying down to sleep and didn't. He said, I can do without food and drink. I cannot lie down to sleep, but it is not possible for me to forget my mother's words. Um, and when Maureen put that incense stick, it was, um, it was in a little black bowl 
that I'd brought her from New Mexico, it was hand rubbed to a dark glow by um, a Native American woman potter in a New Mexican Pueblo. And the bowl, the little incense bowl, it's, it's, the incense stick is held in um, tamped down ash, very, and you, you shake it like this, and it, it smooths out completely. You sift out the burned sticks, and then you smooth it out completely. And so that slender stick of incense, it's held, um, and the ash from the incense drops into this fine gray powder, and then it too gets gathered and sifted and smoothed. Um, Maureen was deeply enlightened. She understood how to dissolve herself and forget herself. The study of Buddhism is the study of the self, said Dogen. We study the self to forget the self. And we forget the self to be awakened by all things. She, um, she understood all that. And yet she loved every whiff of that incense. And then her last words, live it up. Very um, wonderful last, wonderful last words. Um, from Zen Master Ikkyu, he woke up on hearing a crow cawing. He was sitting in his rowboat on a lake where he lived. And he said, 10 dumb years, I wanted things to be different. Furious, proud, I can still feel it. One summer night in my little boat on Lake Biwa, he heard that crow, Father, when I was a boy, you left me. Now I forgive you. These um, awake, these poems, these stories of awakening, what I love about them is they're about walking in two worlds the world of understanding the suchness, the isness, the this is itness of experience. Just this, vanishing, morphing, dissolving into just this, and then just that, and just this. And at the same time, so human, still feeling his rage at his father. Even in the midst, and it's not even in the midst, that's what he woke up to. That was the contents of his awakening, sitting in the robe, furious, proud, you know, really feeling it, and then being able to acknowledge, yes, you left me, you abandoned me, I forgive you. That walking in the world of the intimately personal, what could be more intimately personal than being able to forgive a parent who abandons us? And then so universal. This is how it is to be a human being in my little rowboat on the lake, realizing this so clear. Somebody was talking in a meeting about how beautiful 
everything looks. Now, toward the end of retreat, <laughs> you can really start to see it because you know you don't have 10 more days to see all kinds of other things too. So you can see the beauty of this place and the last sunlight on the golden hill and the stars starting to come out. And, and this is a poem uh, by Mary Oliver and she's talking about what it's like when we aren't looking through that lens of self, when we have a moment when we forget the self. Uh, there's a beautiful quote. Again, I'm maybe paraphrasing because with even all these papers and everything, I didn't write this one down. Um, but it's by the teacher from Bombay that Jack was talking about in Sargadat. And he talks about this way he talks about practice is um, that we are learning to shift the location of our consciousness and that we're learning to be able to shift the location of our consciousness so it's not always here looking out there at you separate far away what Matthew was talking about the making things an object reifying thingifying everything um, which is, of course, what Zen Master Zwigan was talking about, too, when he said, don't be deceived by others, seeming others. So Nisargadot was saying, you know, we can shift the location of our consciousness to become the very thing that we're aware of, that we look at. It's a kind of radical empathy. We can really feel what it's like. In Tibetan practice, they call it exchanging self for other. Anybody who's a therapist, anybody who's ever tried to, what is the expression, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, but put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Um, and he's saying that willingness to shift the location of our consciousness is love. That's an act of love. So here's Mary Oliver. She says, and her practice is going out in nature and being very still as some of you have been doing, maybe all of you, I hope. She says, look, this is uh, toward the end of the poem. Look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm ever going to have to be alive and know it. Sometimes in late summer, I won't touch anything. Not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't name the birds or the trees. I won't whisper my own name. One morning, the fox came down the hill, glittering and confident, and didn't see me. She was so quiet, so non-touching of anything, just like mindfulness, not trying to interfere, or disturb, or change, or alter anything. So quiet. The fox came down the hill, glittering and confident, and didn't see me. And I thought, so this is the world. I'm not in it. It's beautiful. So just that feeling of, I'm not in it, 
and it's beautiful. Um, of course she's in it, right? She's in it, but she's not in it in that way of going forward to do something to it or with it. Um, my first teacher, Desansanim, I've been thinking about him a lot and feeling so grateful to him, the Korean Zen master. Uh, his meditation instructions to us, he was the master of Dharma sound bites, and he boiled them down to um, don't make, don't touch, don't hold. In other words, when you have an experience, don't make something of it. A story about yourself, for example, just random example, right? <laughs> don't touch. See, that's what she was doing, not touching. And he, the example he used would be, um, I mean, he used restaurant, but for me it was more vivid being a bakery. Uh, is that you're walking down the street and you pass a bakery and it's just filled with delicious, you know, fruit tarts and, well, let's not go into all the things that would be in the bakery right this minute because we're not at the bakery. But you walk past and you pass the bakery and you look in the window and you see all these scrumptious things, but you keep going. You don't go inside the bakery. You don't touch it. You keep going. And then don't hold. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold an insight. Don't hold on to it because then this becomes that and it isn't it anymore. It's just got to be, this is it, this is it, this is it. Um, and the this is it is the ordinariness of this is it that we kind of rebel against. We don't want to feel that just the ordinariness is it, but it is. It is it. Um, inconsequential, tiny, little things. This is it. And um, when we realize how precious this is, yeah, we can't really dance around with each other and, and do that here, but, but we can really feel that lightness of being with the transient ephemeral uh, nature of our life and at the same time that nothing matters, everything matters. Jack had that beautiful quote. I think it was Kalu Rinpoche. I forget it. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between those two, my life flows. So, you know, the tiny inconsequential the little personal this, that, or the other thing of us opens into um, the universal experience. And there's not really, I think we can see it in the teaching, when teachers teaching, there's not any movement that is inconsequential, right? In Qigong. And it's what the um, great teacher Rinzai was pointing to when he said there's nothing that's not sacred. There's nothing that's not profound. He said that, nothing that's not sacred and profound. When we are open in this way, when our hearts and minds are open to receive life in this way, 
And one yogi, uh, one retreatant, realized this through her Qigong practice, that the whole arc of any gesture is important. And she found herself reaching for a doorknob with that same attentiveness that, you know, you sweep the arm with in Qigong. And it's, um, it's a kind of continuity of mindfulness or uh, as Tija said, Zen Shin, unbroken mind, um, a continuity of mindfulness that we can flow through these days of retreat and flow through our life of leaving retreat, which I know is coming up for you now. Try to stay here in the stillness. You know, we don't have, it's so precious and you've worked so hard for this richness of the stillness. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, we need, in his new book about silence, he says, we need stillness as much as we need food and water and air. So, I want to end. I don't really want to end, actually. I have pages and pages and pages of beautiful stories and dharma to share with you. But it's not just that my colleagues want me to end, which I know they do. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that um, less is more. And um, I'm just telling myself that. Okay, one more story. One more. I promise the last one. This is the last one. And I've told this story before, and so some of you have heard it. But it feels like important ending story um is a story about the dalai lama when he was young and he uh he was on the cover of the snow lion which was just a newspaper in those days now it's a glossy magazine and his hands were palms together like that and he had that little smile and he was saying maybe i am the last dalai lama that was the pull quote. Maybe I am the last Dalai Lama. It's all right. There's nothing wrong. And really, my mind just went tilt when I saw that. How can he say that about his people, about genocide, about how can he say that it's all right and there's nothing wrong? I couldn't imagine that it would be okay for a whole lineage to and tradition of family and culture and language and religion to disappear in that um, slow uh, decimation of Tibet. And I just couldn't imagine how he could say that when his people rely so much on him for courage and inspiration. But his words had the ring of truth. They inspired my practice. And I think you've probably all experienced it, that you can be sitting with tears streaming down your face and it can be all right. It really can be all right. And it's not the all right of, oh, that's okay. It's a big all right, a really big all right. It's the all right of just particular things falling out of balance, but against a background of, perfect balance. That's what Suzuki Roshi said. So to be 
at ease, to feel whole and complete on our journey here in the retreat and on our path of life. We really learn that life can blossom right in the midst of suffering, that the whole spectrum of our humanness, when it's that momentary stream of experience, then anger is truth, joy is truth, pleasure is truth, pain is truth, rage is truth, lust is truth. You know, it's the truth of that moment. And and there's a freedom that comes uh, that even in the face of the oceans of suffering in the world, there can be joy and we can live it up. We can do what we do with joy and live it up. And I think the one of the people who said it best uh, was a Zen poet who said, even though it all goes wrong, all of it, okay, even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. That's uh, the poet Leonard Cohen, and that's his expression of it. And even though it all goes wrong, may we stand before the goddess of song with nothing on our lips but hallelujah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.